0: Hello friends, I am Cindy Thompson and this is a Resilience Project. This is a space where stories are shared and possibilities are discovered. I invite you to partner with me in cultivating resilience among humans one conversation at a time. For those of you who are new parents, experienced parents, or a step-parent, what have been some of your biggest challenges you struggle with? Are you finding a new sense of normal yet? What if I were to suggest that each of those adversities and random curveballs that you've been experiencing for yourself and your children have actually been helping you to grow your resilience? This is the focus for this episode. Parenting can feel like a moving target just when you feel like you figured it out everything changes. My question is, what do you need now? Are the coping strategies and resilient skills you have relied on to date still cutting it? Mental health experts are predicting that we are going to see increased signs of depression and anxiety within our communities as we all take inventory of where we are right now and what we need moving forward. Parenting is one of the hardest jobs out there, I think. It is challenging, beautiful and messy all at the same time. On any given day, it leaves us wondering, are we getting it right? In this episode, Dr. Carolyn Bizanko and I are talking about the importance of cultivating resilience in our children, signs of stress in our kids, things to watch for, when to reach out for help, what to focus on and what to let go of. We are covering a lot of ground in this short period of time. Dr. Bazanko is a registered psychologist whose mission is to inspire and empower mental health professionals, educators, and families in promoting children and teens' resilience, and ultimately, their long-term success. If you are a parent listening to this episode, I want you to know we see you, and I am really glad you're here, because this one is for you. Here is my conversation with Dr. Bazanko. Well, Carolyn, thank you for being here and bringing your wealth of knowledge and experience to the podcast so that we can be here to support parents and their families around resilience. Thanks for having me. We're not really through the pandemic yet, so I'm not going to say that.
1: People Mm -hmm. are tired out there. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Exhausted, everybody, yeah.
0: Even though we feel somewhat removed it's amazing how world events will add to that additional stress. And maybe it's because our muscles are tired. We're already that exhausted to add another world event war happening to maybe family members is an additional piece that is an extra layer.
1: It is. And, you know, I just actually did a workshop not too long ago about this on resilience and, and some of the stressors that our kiddos face. And yes, Previous generations have had war, for example, and previous generations have had a lot of similar stresses, maybe not COVID, other things, but similar stresses over the years. What's unique about this generation, though, is they have access to world events at their fingertips. And we have this crisis saturated society, which is, you know, we know with news, our brain is always looking out for danger and and the news has globbed onto that to get us addicted to all of the things that are happening, all the bad things that are happening. And now kids are getting it, not just from their parents or the radio, they can look and see immediately. Even 9-11, we saw huge increase in stress and anxiety for kiddos because they were watching the same clip over and over, not realizing it was the same clip. They thought it was happening over and over and over again. And even teenagers have a hard time wrapping their head around what's happening on the other side of the world isn't happening here. Being able to separate that. I mean, it's just, it's so stressful for a lot of our kids and they're hearing it everywhere. The conversations and when we're stressed as parents or adults or teachers, they really pick up on all of that. And so we see our kiddos now more stressed than ever before. And a lot of it has been because of this immediate access to everything that's going on in the world.
0: Great point. It's something we take for granted and you can't compare to what our parents and previous generations have gone through because of maybe that element of it and the access to information and visual access too. We're actually Mm -hmm. seeing things that we wouldn't otherwise be privy to. Carolyn, I think of our conversation today in two parts. One part is, as we're already jumping into, helping parents through this, helping them grow their resilience so they can then help their kids in their resilience practices. And I see it as a skill set. So not only some recovery pieces, but also proactive strategies as we think about just growing resilience in our children, period, not just because of what's happening in our world. But some really good solid skill sets that we can give our kids so that as they grow into adulthood, they're going to have what they need to set them up strong and to be able to weather whatever storms come along.
1: For sure. Absolutely. I often tell parents when you're doing good as a parent, your kids are probably doing pretty good as well, at least up until teenage years, because teenagers do have a whole other host of stressors and things on their plate in different relationships. It's all eye rolling because we hear it all the time. Put your oxygen mask on first before you can help others. And it's hard. I know so many parents who come and see me in the work. They're just like, I just want you to help my child. If you can help my child, that's going to help me. But it really does start with the parents. I'm actually moving towards a model where I'm working with parents first. You have to see me for at least a certain amount of sessions to make sure that you are in a good place before I can work with your kiddo because I'm asking your kiddo to do hard work you need to be able to co-regulate yourself. And so looking at even just basic needs, how much sleep are you getting? If you're not getting enough sleep, that's going to affect your ability to function and to be the parent that you need to be for your kids, to be patient when they're coming to you whining or screaming or complaining. Being able to respond in helpful ways is huge. And for us to be able to respond in helpful ways It's making sure that we do have that time to sleep and to decompress and to do things that we enjoy, even if it's just a few little moments through the day, being able to sit with your coffee and feel the warmth of your cup and just enjoy that, even for 30 seconds. It's looking for those little moments throughout the day. That's so important. So really reflecting, I'm encouraging parents all the time to reflect, how are you doing? Really, truly, how are you doing? What do you need? Mm. You know, and looking at our support networks and I think being able to ask for help and even just our partners or even our children, being able to articulate that. I mean, that's going to be good modeling anyways for them. And I mean, when I look at resilience, part of it's emotional literacy. They need to be able to say, I'm stressed or I'm frustrated. And that starts with us first. So modeling all of those things that we want to see in our kids
0: hundred percent. I love the idea of just doing a bit of an inventory, maybe even before we respond in the moment, because as parents, you're always flying by the seat of your pants. You never know what's coming next and you may have to deal with something. So maybe doing that inventory, checking in with yourself, how am I doing? Mm -hmm. And being able to then say, okay, am I up for this conversation? Do I need to hit pause for a moment? I love that idea proactively, not just reactively.
1: Yeah. And I actually have a keyword. My girls will say puppy. And that's the keyword to say, hey, mom, I can tell that you're stressed out or you're getting frustrated. So that's really helpful for me to be able to be like, okay, you guys are recognizing that I'm feeling stressed. What do I need? I need to take a a step back. I'm always saying our job is to not escalate the situation. We don't want to trigger the amygdala. The amygdala is the fight or flight response in the brain. Because once that's triggered for us or our children, there's no talking that's going to happen. Nothing productive is going to happen. If they're noticing it me, that's great. But when I notice, okay, I am getting to an escalated level here. It's not going to go anywhere. I say I'm disengaging. And my little one does get angry. Fine. Don't listen to me. You're going to ignore me. And she'll stomp upstairs. But she knows... It's futile to fight because the minute I say I'm disengaging, she knows I'm no longer going to have whatever fight she's ready to have. Proactively, I set it up. When I say this word disengaging, it means I love you. I don't want to get into a fight with you. So I'm going to stop talking. So I don't just all of a sudden do it and she feels ignored. She knows that that's going to come. Sometimes I actually do have to leave and go for a little bit of a walk. So having those key words can be really helpful for everybody. We all know kind of Okay, we need to take a break. And I think too, it's okay to not know in the heat of the moment. Your kids just do something, they hit their sibling, or you just found out they got suspended from school. We don't have to say anything in the moment. I know a lot of behaviorists would say you need to be very swift with reinforcement or punishment, but we don't have to necessarily know. It could be enough to say, interesting choice. Let me get back to you. I'm going to go think about the Mm. consequence. Creating that pause is so important for whatever the situation is, creating that pause.
0: Mm. Well, and I'm a big fan of checking our side of the fence, looking after first what's going on, what's our trigger, our reaction in the moment. And if we're coming into that moment, super dialed up and stressed, then our reaction may not be healthy as a modeling for our kids. So I love that. What a great way of just having that clarity, hopefully in that moment, not that we get it right all the time but we try and the kids may not like that. I'm disengaging, but that's a great example of it's okay. At least it's hitting pause for the moment and that you're giving yourself a chance to breathe. Yeah. I do a lot
1: on on how to be an effective emotion coach for your kiddo. And the first step is awareness, awareness of your own emotions as well as your child's. And so I talk about those little moments of mindfulness. That's so important that we can just drop into our body and not go into our head away with the story. You can't hit your brother. You can't talk to me like that. It's being able to recognize what's going on for me. So that awareness piece is always, yeah, the first, first and foremost piece. Awesome.
0: So can we talk a little bit about what you're seeing? I thought maybe it would be helpful for parents to see what would they be noticing in their younger children or teens that would be indicating that they're stressed because sometimes it's confusing. It feels situational, but maybe it's cumulative. Could you maybe give us an idea of what people might be noticing in their kiddos to help identify it early and maybe then get them the support they need?
1: Right. Any big changes in anything, sleeping, eating, their enjoyment level of things that they used to like, motivation, any changes that you see, that's an indicator that something's going on for them. Big reactions, bigger than what the situation calls for. Some kids, that's just their normal MO and that's okay. But I'm talking about all of a sudden they're more moody, they're more irritable. We're seeing those huge mood swings. Regression in behaviors. I'll see even middle school kids who are all of a sudden bedwetting again or any age, really, any more baby talk, more clinginess. Hey, mom, where are you? What time are you going to be home? Can you come tuck me in? Even those kinds of things where we see a regression could be in behaviors or like outward aggressive behaviors or verbally swearing or anything like that, but also just sucking your hair more, sucking your thumb. There's those kind of more internalized behaviors as well. Those are kind of the big things too. They might be more complaining, negative, just everything's more of a disappointment. It's really that irritability is where we start seeing the big change. Sometimes it's not a sudden thing though. And I think that that's mm-hmm. really tricky for parents because oftentimes they're like, how did we get here? It was just such a slow sort of transition from... A little bit of irritability to big, huge outbursts all the time. But if you're noticing your interactions too, you're just more snappy at each other and fighting, there's definitely something going on. So it's just taking a look. I think, though, it's tricky because a lot of kids mask during school, they hold it together and then they're just so exhausted, it all comes out, explodes at
0: home. It sounds like a sweet spot there of being an observer so that you're not taking it personally that it can feel personal when you're fighting, more irritated with one another, less patience, big reactions. It can feel like I just got to get a handle on top of this. My kid's out of control. And yet if you're taking an observer role, it allows you to then gather that evidence, gather that data over time.
1: I always say curiosity is the opposite of fear and anger and the frustration that we have as parents. And it's like, hmm, what's going on here? That's so important. Being able to what's going on in my body, paying attention to like, oh, my chest is starting to stress my muscles. I'm clenching my fists. All of that is so important.
0: Yeah, so good. Given those symptoms, that parents might start to recognize, whether cumulatively or suddenly, at what point would you suggest it might be helpful to get some outside help, counseling per se?
1: Mm-hmm. I think sooner is better, even if it's a quick consultation with someone, because I think what ends up happening is everyone's like, oh, it's just a phase or they'll outgrow it. It's not a big deal. But then you get to that point, how are we here? And now we're in crisis. When couples decide to finally go to therapy, one partner is usually already checked out. It takes like Mm -hmm. seven years to make that decision on average. It's better that early intervention piece, especially if we're looking at things like stress, which becomes anxiety, which as they go into teenage years, turns into depression. Early intervention is critical because oftentimes we put it off and put it off and they're not getting the support. It doesn't actually go away. So even a consultation saying, Hey, this is what's going on. How can I support my kiddo? So it doesn't even have to be the kiddo going into therapy for parents to know how to respond. I was just consulting with a family yesterday who their daughter is going through these big emotional outbursts. And so they're tense, just what kid is going to be coming through the door. And so if they're already tense, their amygdala is already on alert. Kids pick up that tension. So one of the things I had told them was every time she has an emotional meltdown, put a dollar in a jar. And so at the end of the month, whatever's in that jar, you guys can go out on a date night. So if she only has five tantrums in a month, you can go and split a hamburger at McDonald's. But if she has 90, just their outlook, their perception, it's kind of like, oh, yes, you got it. You had an outburst today. Fantastic. <laughs> we get to put a, a dollar in the jar. It's just to shift our response because that's going to be so much more helpful. I used to say, yes, this is a great opportunity for me to practice my co-regulation and for us to work on your frustration tolerance. But I think parents still have a really hard time around that. So it's maybe it's your own reinforcement. Like, yes, this is an opportunity because just going back to your earlier point about taking things personal. I think that is where we get sucked in to the Mm. fight and the frustration is you can't talk to me like that. You need to respect me, whatever that is. And kids, they do go for the heartstrings, whether purposefully or not. I think it's not just because they're like a wild animal. They just can't think straight when that amygdala is triggered, but they do go for heartstrings. You're the worst mother ever. I hate you. Right. Or I wish I was never born. Why am I here? I want to be dead. I want to kill myself. Hearts, oh, it's gut wrenching, heart pulling, and we get sucked in to responding in an unhelpful ways. So,
0: yeah, yeah I love heart. that you identified that because I do hear that from parents often that they're living in fear when their child or youth throws that out. They're living in a place of being captive almost, yeah. and they've lost their power. They've lost that observer role. And for them to know that kids will know how to push those buttons, they'll know what to say, that is going to give them the power back, if you will. So I love that you've identified that and it can be helpful maybe for parents to hear that that's part of what's happening in that moment.
1: Absolutely. I keep talking about the amygdala, the emotional network part of the brain. It goes into fight or flight. I think we all know that. And it's usually the fight piece. An example that I often give parents just to help them wrap their head around that is, you know, when you stub your toe or you hit your head on a cupboard or something, your response is usually to swear. You're angry. It's the pain part of your brain. And so if we can see a kiddo who, even if they're aggressive and they're destroying our stuff and smashing things or hitting their sibling. That aggression, it, it's the pain part of their brain is triggered. It's a child in pain. It's a child mm. in need. It's a hurting child. And that's why what you're talking about being that observer, being able to take that step back and see what's really going on here. Oh, kiddo, your brother really upset you. Oh, man, looks like you had a rough day. If we can see that hurting child. As our first response, it does make our response way more helpful. And we're going to de escalate whatever's going on behaviorally with our kiddos way easier because we are showing that care and love and support that they actually need.
0: Mm, So good. So we're naming it to tame it in a way. We're naming what's going on, even if the child may not fully understand exactly what they're feeling in that moment or get to the root of it by observing it, naming it for them, identifying and validating it, we're also staying in our shoes and being able to respond calmly. Yeah. But I often tell parents, think of it like a roller coaster. If your kid's on the roller coaster, you don't want to be on there with them. I want your feet firmly planted on the ground and noticing them on the roller coaster. You're going to know when you're on there with them because emotionally you're engaged.
1: Yeah. That's so true. That's perfect. And it that's just, going back to that curiosity observer stance for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Cause I, I use it, it a lot and it can just give us a visual. How can parents proactively grow resilience in their children? Because I think of parenting as the long game. Mm-hmm. Any investment we make in our kids really is going to pay off long term. And we can't see it in the moment. We're sometimes just responding or reacting. And those strategies that we build as skill sets are going to then be building blocks for our kids. And yet I do see a pattern of parents wanting to rescue their kids, make them as comfortable as possible. Would you speak to that?
1: Yeah, actually, my husband and I are just doing a parenting podcast. And one of the episodes I talk about a Seinfeld episode where George does everything opposite of what his gut reaction is just to see. And he ends up being super successful. He meets a woman and he's like, yeah, I live in my parents' basement. And he gets the girl. Everything that's counterintuitive to him is actually what helps him be successful. I think it's opposite George or something. Okay parenting's kind of like that. Anything that we think is helping is probably not actually helping our kiddos. Anytime we're jumping in, we want to try to fix things or make them feel better. Lots of reassuring or, hey kiddo, like why don't you go find other friends that you can go hang out with at recess? Those responses are not helpful or punishing or lecturing or teaching, especially in the heat of the moment, not helpful. So it's about taking a step back. Anytime we swoop in and when we're talking about resilience, I mean, the definition of resilience really is being able to face and manage and thrive after significant adversity or stress, you know, and so significant sources of stress. Our kids need to experience adversity and stress and failure and fights and all of those things to be able to learn from those experiences and grow. So if we're always swooping in, you know, we all know the helicopter parent, the new term is lawnmower parent, where we're like making a nice smooth path for our kiddos. And I actually just came across the curling parent this past year, where if you think of curling, we're wiping the ice perfect smooth so that our kids can get to that exact bullseye. We're Mm. creating the perfect conditions. But what's happening is these kiddos who've got everything at their disposal, have never experience the discomfort and significant stress, they're falling so much harder and further as adults. And they're having breakdowns and so much more anxiety and suicidality and everything else. So our children need to have those opportunities. So I always tell parents resilience needs opportunity. And so every single day, Getting your kids to do hard things every single day, getting them to be a little bit more independent. So, I often ask parents, what are you doing for your kiddos that they can do for themselves? If they can function an iPad or a cell phone, they can do their own laundry. They can function a dishwasher or a laundry machine. So, it could be little things like that, building their independence. I love giving riddles, challenge of the day, stretching out of your comfort zone, figuring things out my daughter's got her learner's license and I don't tell her where to go. And I love that analogy. When you're in the passenger seat, you're watching where you're going, but you're not really paying attention. So when it's your turn to drive, you don't really know where to go. I'll let her make the wrong turn or go on the freeway the wrong way. And she's got to figure out, oh man, okay, now how do I get back? How do I backtrack? So little examples like that but it's really allowing them to figure those things out. We're there for support. I always say you're the CEO of X. X could be getting yourself ready in the morning for school. It could be being on top of your homework. It could be getting us from point A to point B. If you're driving, you're the CEO. I'm a consultant. Mm -hmm. If you need help, you're asking me. I'm not going to tell you if you're asking for specific advice Then I know you're open to listening because it's usually we are trying to tell them, direct them or give them advice and they're not listening. So I often talk about directors. We are directing our kids. Go do this. Go do your homework. Make sure you go to bed. Go play with this person. We're ordering them around all the time. The only place for a director is on a movie set. We need to be questioners. Mm. So how are you going to get started? What's your plan for your chores? So asking those questions. And it's looking, especially when it comes to things like anxiety and that discomfort, it's allowing them to face them without us accommodating. The more accommodating we do and reassuring that we do, the worse their outcome later on. So it's looking for those opportunities and lots of different experiences. My little one just flew by herself on the plane for the first time. I mean, she's been on a plane, but always with us. That was huge. She was nervous. She was scared because like, what's going to happen? The handoff. And if I'm on the plane and I'm like, I don't know, kid, it's the power of, I don't know. It's not Mm -hmm. us about reassuring. It's like, I don't know what's going to happen. You let me know when you get to the other side, what it was like. And if you had to go to the bathroom and if people are going to talk to you, I don't know what's going to happen. So I think that's more of a stance that we can be taking. I don't know. You let me know because kids learn through experience, but we just got to make sure we're giving them those
0: experiences. We're helping them trust themselves really from what you're saying is building on their ability to think for themselves, to think through problems. How would you like to handle that? I love your framework for it of the CEO because it's so empowering to think, I trust you enough to make some decisions for yourself and to think through it and problem solve. Whereas if we are always making the decisions for them and directing, they don't learn to think for themselves. They're just listening, they're just trying to abide and follow the rules and hear your ideas, but they don't really develop that skill set to think through problems
1: because we're sending the message that you can't handle it. And that's what anxiety is, the belief that I can't handle it. And so if you've got a kiddo who gives up really easily or says, I can't do it or backs away, as a parent, I need to look at where am I telling them that they can't handle it? Every time we're like, oh, kiddo, you're climbing the tree too high. Oh, slow down on your bike. Oh man, we're correcting and fixing. And yes, I know our job is to protect them and we're nervous because we don't want any harm to come. But by doing those things, we're sending that message that you can't handle it. And so they're going to start either doubting themselves and their capacity Or they're going to lash out and push back. But still, that message is still going to be in there. That Mm -hmm. self-doubt and that belief, I really can't. And so it's just easier to quit, not do it. Mom can do it for me or get that help. Or they believe we give them these crutches and they rely on those crutches.
0: Yes. Well said. I really appreciate those thoughts. I'm curious if you have noticed an uptick in kids with school refusal, because with COVID and classes being in, not in, parents anxious about COVID, will my kid bring it home? We're visiting grandma and grandpa. I can't have them there. I'm curious how you have been responding to that and what you'd recommend to parents.
1: Yeah, huge, huge. I mean, I've had school refusal kiddos with those difficulties before, but it's really become kind of a crisis. We need to get those kiddos back in class as fast as possible. So that's first and foremost, because this is a crisis. And again, this is one of those situations. It's like, how did we get here? Because it's one day, my tummy's sick. Okay, you can stay home. And then now it's a couple of days. And now six months later, kiddos still not in school, it becomes a problem. So teaching our kids about what happens in our body. When that amygdala is triggered, that emotional network, it's going to make our hearts start beating because it can't tell the difference between I'm worried about something at school. Math's going to be a little too hard and we're going to get eaten. Brain can't tell the difference. So it's going to kick in the fight or flight. So yeah, our heart's going to beat faster because it's got to get the blood to our big muscles. We're going to have to breathe faster to oxygenate the blood. So we're breathing shallowly. So we might get headachey, We might get dizzy. Digesting, that doesn't help us run or fight. So Acid is going into our stomach. Guess what, kiddo? You feel sick. So it's that validating. Yeah, that makes sense that you feel sick today. No wonder that's what your body's doing. Period. We're still going though, right? Like And so that's the thing. I think it's harder as kids get older, we can't just potato sack them into the school and force them to go in. So that's definitely harder, not engaging in the conversation though. The more we talk about it, bigger, the problem becomes and, and the more anxious kiddos get. So it's about just stating your expectation. You're going to school tomorrow, kiddo. And then in the morning, Kate, time to go to school and that's it. We're not engaging in a fight. Now we can't control their behaviors, but we can control our behaviors. So We might not be able to take our 16 year old over our shoulder and drag them into school, but there's other things that we can be doing. Making sure home is boring as heck, no access to any screens whatsoever. And maybe you're going to sign chores, whether or not they do them, we can't do that. But even food, taking out all the good food. So it's a boring, plain old sandwich that you can have for lunch, getting teachers calling kiddo hey kiddo we're thinking of you you know having that conversation classmates coming so that they still feel like they're part of school that's going to be really important better yet carpooling setting up a time mm-hmm. like another parent and kid is coming to the house to pick up your kid or you're going to friend's house to pick them up and so all of those things can be really helpful we want to be careful with accommodations because sometimes we'll put in okay you can go to the principal's office You can hang out there. And then when everything's calm, you can go to the classroom. If we have to do that just to get the kiddo into the school in the first place, that's fine. But we want to make sure we're progressing forward. We're still upping the ante so that they're back in school full time. Once they're at school, parents can not pick their kiddo up. I had one kiddo who had his phone and his parents weren't responding to his text come pick me up come pick me up come pick me up but then he took a picture of himself crying in the bathroom at school and that was the thing kate parents felt bad and they came and picked him up so guess what like that's going to be his go to every single time we start <laughs> shaping these behaviors it's letting your kiddos know you got to take a unilateral approach we're going to validate yeah i understand how anxious you are and i understand how hard it is but i also know you can cope i also know that you can go into school and do that so it's that confidence piece as well and this is what we're going to be doing mm.
0: you know
1: as parents we're only going to answer one call a day i'm going to pick you up at the scheduled time at 3:30 really Clearly, I would even write them down. So you've got the plan and they've got the plan about what that's going to look like. So futility sets in. Doesn't matter how many times you text me or send me crying pictures at 3.30. I will be there. That's the plan. So I think especially with school refusal, because it does get out of hand quick, it becomes such a crisis that Mm -hmm. we need to early as fast as possible, get on it and have a plan and with the school as well.
0: Well, I like the message of community in that too, that parents often feel like there's so much pressure on their shoulders. They have to go to work. They don't know what to do with their kid. Yeah. Rallying community. Would you mind? We'll set it up that you could pick up my kid tomorrow when you're on your way to school. Those kinds of ways or rallying the school to be involved in some way or other peers can be a conduit to we're in this together and we're not alone. I love the message there. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so important. Yeah. So good. It made me feel like we're circling back a little bit. What would be healthy for parents to tolerate? Because I feel like the bar is high around what people are willing to tolerate a lot and they get a lot of flack from their kids, or we've got the parents that are willing to tolerate nothing. Eye rolling huffing and puffing And yet when we are stressed, we might need to express it, especially those externalizing kids who are going to let you know exactly what they're feeling at any given moment. This is their safe place. I wonder what would be a healthy model or framework that parents can go by to say these things would be healthy for your kids to be expressing if they are frustrated. They're not robots, but at the same time, not tolerating the other extreme.
1: I always remind parents when kids are upset and when they are exhibiting those externalizing behaviors, they're all knotted up with those emotions and they can't get loose from them. And so in terms of what can we tolerate, I would say every family needs to figure out what their red lines are. But to be honest, unless they're physically hurting you, there's nothing that we can do in the heat of the moment to try to correct them or to do anything. So the best response in any situation, unless they're being physically aggressive, even if they're destroying other things, even then the best response is to validate your kiddo. And that's where it's putting aside our agenda and our personal needs in the moment is so important. And I think that that's the hardest part for parents because they feel like they're just being walked on and and being abused, but nothing else is going to be helpful in that moment. So that's why I say I'm disengaging. Fortunately, my girls don't get aggressive or anything like that, but it's a matter of acknowledging, I can see you're really upset. I'm going to be right over here for you. And I think mm. that's really important is saying, I validate, I see you, I understand, and I am here for you. I'm not going to stand here, <laughs> but I'm going to be, when you're ready, I'll be in the kitchen or I'll be on the couch waiting for you or in my bedroom waiting for you the talking, the teaching, the consequencing, anything that you feel needs to happen has to come later on and not right away, not right after your kids just calm down, because even if they seem like they've calmed down, they're more likely to escalate right away again, especially after a big outburst. So the only thing in the heat of the moment, I mean, I will not tolerate physical aggression. We're not going to sit there and let our kids kick us or hit us. We are going to defend ourselves from that, but everything else, the best response is to disengage and maybe it's the next day or, Hey, let's chat about what happened on Tuesday. What was going on, right? Mm. And being able to open that up. And oftentimes kids are pretty insightful and they already know that they're not supposed to swear at us. It doesn't do us any good to try to tell them, Hey, no swearing. Hey, be respectful. Hey, they know it. So having that conversation and asking questions, what do you think would be a good consequence to what had happened?
0: That can be so powerful and definitely the better way to go. And that's the one end of that extreme. But then there's the parents also that won't tolerate the eye rolling and the huffing. And I feel as though as human beings, we are going to express our emotions. But like you said, if they're not hurting anybody, they're just expressing their emotions in that moment, which might be a trigger. It might feel disrespectful to us. I guess to assess what their red line is, is like you're saying, what is the marker for that? And yet being realistic about it. I
1: do a lot of coaching with parents just around the eye roll or the under breath sort of comment. What did you say to me? Okay, hold on a second. That emotion, they don't have control. That's an automatic process that we have zero control over. Our emotional network part of the brain is the the strongest, fastest, oldest part of the brain that we have zero control over. It's what we do with it. But for now, even just that huff or that eye roll, that's still communicating. That's still Mm -hmm. communicating. Okay. I can see kiddo that you didn't like this choice. Let's chat about it. Or that I can see that you're frustrated with me. So still validating that that's helping build that emotional literacy that I talked about early on where we can put words, but a Mm -hmm. lot of times in the moment, the brain regresses and they can't put words to what they're actually feeling. So we are going to help them do that. It's going to come out behaviorally or eye roll or the huff, or whatever that is. That's a total normal. And I would say preferable reaction than what it could be i think that even just stomping up the stairs and slamming a door i think that you got it good if that's the worst that it's going to get and it will only get worse if we are jumping on them for every little thing like that that we might not like
0: mhm to springboard from that i'm just thinking out loud here but we don't want it to go underground either we hope that our kids we will learn to work through conflict. And like you said, it's a beautiful opportunity to work it through and hear from each other. Even if we differ on our opinion on it, the value of just having them be heard even later or at some point helps them work through it. And to feel like they were heard, they may not have the same opinion, but at least we captured what is most important to them about that in that situation. And I think a part of resilience practice is how do we resolve conflict? We don't want unhealthy peace at home either. Yeah. And it's about
1: accountability and integrity. And my little one is so good at it. She'll come back even after a fight or in the middle of the fight. Hey mom, I can see that we're fighting. I can see that you're frustrated or Hey, like, this is what upset me. You were on your computer and I was trying to tell you something. She's so good at being able to bring up those conversations I think it's a a fail for Gen Zs that they've never really learned to have those hard conversations. And so we are definitely key in, in modeling all of that for them.
0: Well said. Well, I feel like we've been covering a lot of really solid ground here, Carolyn. And I know parenting is such a big topic. And I am curious if there's any other resilience practices that you might want to offer up there
1: I think the big ones that I'm always encouraging parents, like I said, is opportunities for them to explore, try things themselves. Let them use the hammer or help you do something important to decorate the cake and not fix it, no matter what those opportunities are. And then the effective emotion coach is it's not about jumping in to fix things for them, it's just being the observer. Mm -hmm. Being able to acknowledge, oh man, I can see you're really angry. What's next? So it's just a combination of all those things, opportunities and being able to help them process and reflect what's going on for them and identify kind of the next path after
0: that. Beautiful. Yeah. In checking ourselves and knowing our emotions, we are then modeling for them as well. I am so grateful that you would be here to share your knowledge in a broader way with our listeners.
1: Well, thanks for having me. I loved talking about this stuff.
0: My pleasure. I really appreciate the reminder of how significant our mental health can be impacted by having news and media so readily at our fingertips. I want to thank Dr. Bazanko for her very clear and practical strategies for investing in our next generation of young people. This is the segment in the podcast where I like to highlight some of the resilience practices shared by our guest. Dr. Bezanko has identified that she really wants us to see challenges as opportunities for your children. Allow them to make mistakes without coming behind them to fix it. Stay curious. When in conversation with your children or your teen, curiosity is the opposite of anger or fear. I really liked that one. Developing emotional literacy helps both you and your child name it to tame it. This helps you to move out of the amygdala fight or flight center and shift into the prefrontal cortex. Also, working with your child as they learn how to have hard conversations. As a parent, you can model accountability and integrity. And remember, kids need to experience challenges and failure. This is where they learn their strengths and discover that Just what they're capable of, and that they actually can do hard things. Knowing that everyone is figuring out how to manage their crazy schedules with no time left in the day, I hoped to plant a seed with you. We often talk about how we spend our time. When I hear the idea that, you know, physically we spend our money, it's actually gone. But what if we shifted this thinking to how we invest our time? How might this guide us on what is most important and assist us in filtering out anything that is not an investment of your time? Here are a couple of reflection questions for you from this episode. If you recognized yourself as one of the curling parents, lawnmower parent, or helicopter parent, what belief might need to shift so that your child has more opportunities to experience and learn from their discomfort? Secondly, thinking back to some of the challenges you experienced as a child, what strengths did you discover about yourself? How might this give you faith in your child's ability to also work through hard things? Also, I would like you to consider a time when someone you respected said, I believe in you, I know you can handle this. Can you remember how much power that had? I'll leave you with that to consider. Parenting is knowing how to play the long game. Each interaction, conflict, or tantrum is an invitation to be present, stay in your shoes, and remember, this doesn't last forever. You got this. I want to mention that Dr. Carolyn Bezenko has two podcasts. One is called Overpowering Emotions, and the second one with her husband is called Parents of the Year. I want to also mention that I am starting a t-shirt campaign that we are going to be doing to raise funds for Ukraine. You will have two t-shirt designs to choose from with a message of resilience. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram for more information. I'll put the link in the show notes that you will be able to link to the Bonfire website in our store. All profits will go to the Red Cross in support of Ukraine. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and comment on your preferred podcast platform. And finally, remember friends, adversity is inevitable while resilience is a practice. Thank you for listening to this episode of A Resilience Project. We would not be doing this podcast without you. If you or someone you know has an inspirational story or is helping to build resilience in their community, please email me at cindy at a In fact, email me either way. I would love to hear from you. My hope is to feature an episode periodically on your letters of resilience. I'm very interested in hearing your story of how you have tackled hard things and what worked for you. With your permission, I hope to share some of these stories along the way with our listeners. Also, check out my website, aresilienceproject.com to learn more about our amazing guests. Your presence here is important because together we are cultivating a village of resilient individuals. You are creating a space for their stories to be shared and a sacred space for learning to occur. I also have a favour. I would love for you to go to your preferred podcast platform, rate and review the podcast so that we will know how we're doing. I also would like to express my gratitude to the amazing team of volunteers that have jumped on board to support this project. You will find each of those beautiful people on my website on the team page. As you go about this week, I invite you to think about one way that you can continue to grow your resilient muscle. What is one thing you can start with today? See you next week!